Podo. Welcome to A Pod Too Far, the new podcast where we relive 1980s Sunday afternoons spent watching old war movies. No Dolby Atmos, no CGI, often no colour film stock. Just stiff upper lips, do or die missions, and your dad muttering that he really ought to stop watching this nonsense and mow the lawn. I'm Rob Hutton. I write jokes about politics and books about wartime history and espionage. And my co-host is Duncan Weldon. I'm an economist. I write books about economics and history. And I've watched far too many war films. And you also paint... I think small model men. We're, we're going. We're going that very we, first episode. We're going there. We, 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 we're we're shaming go, we're Duncan go. about hobbies straight why, away. <laughs> why is Duncan here? Because Duncan paints little models of men. That's and I also yes. have a. I also have an A level in media studies, which is very relevant. <laughs> so today we're going to kick off with the big one, uh, Bridge Too Far, Richard Attenborough's 1977 epic of Operation Market Garden. Market's the airborne element. Garden. That's the ground element. Duncan, when did you first see this film? Any idea when you first saw this film? I must have first seen this film at some point in, I would guess, the late 1980s. It's probably the film that I've seen the most. I mean, I must have seen this film a dozen times. And, you know, it's three hours long. That's days of my life. (laughs) A day and a half of my life I've spent watching this film. It's the perfect length to get you a train journey from King's Cross to Newcastle. Top tip there. Right. So you you just get off at the point at which Liv Ullman is loading up her cart to go and find shelter. The the British have just failed to get to the bridges as you cross the Tyne Bridge. It's fantastic. Oh, perfect. This film does seem to have a particular significance to... Well, let's just say it to middle-aged men. So, yeah, I've been trying to think for the last few days, is this a good film or not? And do I like it or not? I've certainly seen it a lot. Do I like it a lot? Well, in some ways I do, but in some ways you sort of step back and it's, it's in many ways, it's a dreadful film. It's got probably the best cast of any film made in the last 30 or 40 years. Just that movie poster, which is, you know, line after line of all of these biggest stars of the day. It's got a huge budget. It's got a fantastic director. It's got what should be a really gripping story, and yet somehow it doesn't quite work. you, You never quite know if you're watching sort of, you know, a war film or if you're watching sort of a dramatized documentary about Operation Market Garden. So it did, in fact, get terrible, terrible reviews. The British liked it. The Americans hated it. William Goldman's book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, which, if you're at all interested in the history of cinema, is an absolute must-read, has a long section on making a bridge too far. And what's interesting is, is basically he says he hated all parts of making films except working on a bridge too far, which he just said was brilliant fun, until the moment that the critics dropped their reviews. As you say, there was, there was this sort of all-star cast. It's Joseph Levine, who's the, the producer, has this brilliant idea to make it and basically to sell it as they're making it. The stars are part of that. He was, he was, a, he was an incredible showman. And he sort of understood that if he just sort of got distributors in as they were making it and showed them the rushes and, look, here's Robert Redford, <laughs> that uh, everyone would go, would go mad and just, just start buying it all. And so I think they were, in fact, in profit by the time they'd finished, which is apparently... Very, very unusual. The star they couldn't get is Steve McQueen because they, there's a moment where Goldman and Levine and Attenborough, I think, go to Hollywood to cast Julian Cook, who becomes ultimately Robert Redford character. And they basically at that point the, got, the dashing American, the right. dashing, the dashing American, and they've got one made, they've got one good American part left, 
and they've got Steve McQueen and Robert Redford as as the sort of the the, the two possibles. And Steve McQueen's people say, you're never going to get Robert Redford. He's, he's much too busy doing all the president's men. And so you've got to have Steve. But you can only have Steve if you buy Steve's house. Because Steve can't sell his house. So Joseph Levine has to buy Steve's house. And you have to give... It's, it's, it's proper sort of entourage nonsense. You have to give jobs to 20 people, I don't know, who are, who are coming with... With Steve McQueen, and, uh, and they're sort of they're dead. They're I want, I just want at this point, I want to revisit my podcast rider. Yes. That's a conversation we can have later. <laughs> Got a cup of tea, don't <laughs> complain. They're just sort of squirming at this when they realise that they can get Redford. And, and, and sort of the, the McQueen, it becomes slightly partridge-like, the McQueen offered. He, yeah. doesn't, he doesn't need any of that, really. <laughs> and McQueen realises that he's missed this chance yeah. to, to be in this great film. And it is a great war film to have been in it's when you got the line of tank you, you, you got you got the amazing airborne shots of you know the the, the paradrop with yes hundreds or even thousands of extras jumping with parachute this pre-cgi if you want to film a massive airborne drop you need to put airplanes in the sky and have hundreds of parachutes jumping out of them it's absolutely insane and it uh, yes and you need you need tanks and they, there's a row about whether they can film it they, they either film it in eastern europe where there's lots of like Romania or something, yeah. where they can get lots of tanks quite yeah. easily, or they can film it in Holland where the bridges are. Yeah, but the, the the alternate location doesn't have any bridges, so you either go there and you have to build build bridges <laughs> to capture, mm. or you do it in Holland where where the bridges are, but you have to get the tanks. Yeah, it's a sort of mad but but joyous kind of shoot. And apparently, after he'd finished making it, Attenborough slept for. a about three days, <laughs> just sort of just went to bed, and it, there's, a, there's a brilliant bit where Goldman describes the, the the tension that Attenborough as a director is under. There's this sort of because they can they can close the Nijmegen Bridge for an hour each Sunday morning for filming, and that's the agreement they've got with the town council, and so that's when they have to film Redford crossing the bridge, and if they don't get this shot this Sunday, they have to keep Redford for another week so that they can try it again next Sunday and that will cost them a million dollars. It's called the Million Dollar Hour and it's just this amazing description of Attenborough sort of standing there with everyone buzzing around him and sort of asking him questions about the next shoot and is, is the smoke okay and are those, are those tanks all right and, and all of this sort of thing and he's just... And he's, he's going around telling all the extras have got to keep their eyes shut if they're dead because you can't have any eyeballs moving. If anyone, if anyone blinks, that's it. So if you're if you're dead, if you're dead, please shut your eyes, and and they get it. And Goldman just is, is just in awe of of Attenborough at the end of this. It's not clear to what extent Attenborough was actually investing. I, I think really he was doing this so that he could make Gandhi. Yeah, which is the film that he really cared about. His other war film, which is Oh What a Lovely War, is a is a completely anti-war film. It's it's a, a sort of musical that doesn't quite work about the First World War, but it. Attenborough is not, you know, he's not one of these sort of Don Simpson types who is desperate to make films about people blowing people up against glorious sunsets and this kind of thing. He is personally quite anti-war, and but he's sort of agreed to do this because Levine thinks he'd, he can do the epic stuff. The film opens with this line, and I have a question for you in your wearing your, your historian hat, is, in fact, as Liv Ullman claims, the war still going Hitler's way at the start of 1944? Well, that's quite, quite a stretch of the war is still going Hitler's <laughs> way. So, yeah, but, yeah, but you know, it, it's a good way of setting up the, the tales. You know, forget about completely, as 
lots of Western war movies do what's happening on the much bigger Eastern Front, where you know the German army is by now, late 1944, in complete retreat, in fact, defending old German territory in um, East Prussia. What's happening in the West is, you know, the landings have happened, the Normandy landings. There's then been this bloody six or eight week campaign in Normandy in June and July. The Allies have finally broken out of Normandy. The German army is in retreat. Now, where you can say the war is going slightly more the Germans way is that, you know, what actually happens in sort of late August, September 1944 on the Western Front is that the German army is able to somehow pick itself up, dust itself down and reform a new defensive line. They're losing, but they're not losing as badly as they were a few weeks before. And yet Market Garden, that the film's about. And, and I think the film really is a film about Operation Market Garden. It's not a film about, it's not a story about people involved in mm. Market Garden. You know, the individual characters are all sort of almost bit players. And there, there's very little sort of, you know, no characters you follow through the entire campaign in that same way. No, and you, don't know, you, don't, you don't know about any of their private lives. Are, yeah. are, are, are they married? Do, who are they leaving behind them? Yeah. It's absolutely none of that. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the film is, the film is the story of Operation Market Garden, which is this sort of ridiculously ambitious plan to drop thousands of parachutists, British and American and Polish, to capture key bridges, and then a big armoured advance to you know, link up to them. Now, Operation Market Garden is Monty's plan. Was it a good plan? You know, if you're judging it by what happened, no. But I think even beyond that, no, no, it wasn't a good plan. There's a great story in um, Anthony Beaver's book about Arnhem, which is you know, when they were planning this. Now, obviously, there's a lot of sort of Dutch military officers hanging around London who've made it out of the Netherlands before you know, it's conquered in 1940. They're planning this major airborne and land operation in the Netherlands. You might think it was worth talking to the Dutch in you advance. Might, I, I, you I, might, I, yeah. I, but apparently this didn't happen. And like, you know, the, the, the cool part of the um, plan is driving an armoured division, 30 Corps, down this um, road, which becomes known as Hell's Highway, which is very narrow and is really not the road one would pick to drive an entire armoured division down at speed. And apparently in sort of the pre-war Dutch staff college, they used to, you know, do all of these exercises and pledging to use this specific road was sort of an automatic fail that you haven't thought <laughs> about this um, well uh, enough. So no, it's, it's, a, it's a bad plan. And the film, I think, is really quite good at reflecting that it was a bad plan. What is interesting about the film is, you know, it's Monty's plan. Yeah. And yet Monty is sort of strangely absent from the film. Yes, we'll come back to, to, to Monty's absence, I think. But, it, but yes, there's this fantastic moment where Michael Caine, early, relatively early in the operation, mm. sort of says to one of his, his, his soldiers, well, you know, you see the road here, this is the wide part. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get worse up ahead. Right, so what we do in this podcast is we, we go through a, a sort of a, a series of categories in what we call our after-action report. And the first of these categories is... Quick, Dad, they're on the cable car. What is the moment in this film that you call people in to watch? I mean, actually, for me, I realised that literally the opening titles. <laughs> if if yeah. my children did not call me in from the other room because they turned on the TV and the, the music was playing, I would be quite upset. Yeah, my children claim that all of these films have the same theme tune, but I... It, it, they're variations on a theme. I think <laughs> they're all they're all military marches. Yeah. I think I think the music for this is is fantastic. I mean, it's then really interesting to me that you've got a blockbuster film made for the mass 
British and American market. And the first few minutes are entirely people speaking Dutch and people speaking German. Yeah. We're having no concession. No, it's, it's really much starting as they mean to carry on, I think, the sort of statement of... Yeah. If, you're, if you're bothered by the fact yeah. that all the Germans are going to be speaking German to each other with subtitles, just yeah. leave the cinema now. Yeah, you, you came for Robert Redford? Here's some people speaking Dutch. <laughs> so, now, my, my bet I call people in for, which maybe you know, is why you shouldn't listen to me if I try and call you in to see an exciting bit of cinema. And I promise when we do other films, there'll be more exciting bits. But the bit I love is the briefing scene. Right. When, you know, the British officers are being briefed on, here's going to be the plan. I think of this like one of those American... Well, no, there's a horror speech. I yeah. think of this as one of these old-fashioned Western movies. I mean, which, which, which they just used in the trailer. In the, yeah. the great thing about that, again, going back to Goldman's anecdotes about this, he said he spent ages sort of with the, the Cornelius Ryan book and Market Garden is this operation, I think it's five Victoria Crosses are awarded. There's so many amazing stories. And he's just sitting there trying to work out how to tell this story and couldn't work out how to tell this story. And then he sort of he finds himself looking at the Horrocks speech. Yeah. And he says, oh, my goodness, this is the story. It's one of those old-fashioned Western films. Yeah. The Paras, they're the homesteaders. Yeah. The Nazis, well, you know, they're the Indians closing in. Yeah. And 30 Corps. We're the cavalry on the way to the rescue. And once he, once he understood that basically, the, the, as you say, the film is about Operation Market Garden and it's will they make it? Yeah. Will they make it to Arnhem? Once yeah. he understood that, he said it was really easy and he cut all the VCs. Yeah. So you don't, you don't see anyone winning their VC. <laughs> Again, it goes back to my, this is a film about Market Garden. This is not a film about people. But it's great, you know, from a sort of director's point of view and a writer's point of view, to find that speech sort of setting out the whole operation because it's sort of, you know, it's very early on in the film and, you know, you could write that as, now we're going to have some expositional dialogue to explain what's happening to our is that a real Is that but a real it, speech? I, well, it, it, it's, there is a briefing. The Cowboys yeah. and Indians thing, I'm not sure about, but, you know, that, but the, using that sort of, you know, um, device of we all sit there and watch the British officers briefing, having done yes. just set up the story really well. And it's wonderfully done with sort of Michael Caine and... So my my next quick dad moment is is James Kahn. I didn't ask you how he was. I asked you where he was. <laughs> that, that, that moment where you're you're going to get where Kahn is going to yeah. slam his uh, put it put his lieutenant on the into his jeep and then drive through the German lines. Yeah. That for me is an absolute winner. The Bailey Bridge scene. Yeah, building a Bailey Bridge. Great music. Great Elliot Gould. More depressingly, the supply drop, which is the moment where I I did have to warn my boys when we were watching this that this this was going to be a sad bit <laughs> i mean but that's that is actually i think that's the bit i remember from watching this whenever i watched it in the early 80s that that is the bit that sticks in your mind and that is that is attenborough's view of war yeah is yeah simultaneous sort of moment of great heroism and pointless sacrifice yeah more fun the germans wanting to discuss surrender was there anything else Gem- just generally, Sean Connery, um, Frost, be- be- being sort of lost. Yes. Uh, it's, it's surprising, you know. There's this bit when Sean Connery goes out to sort of reconnoiter the um, German lines and gets separated. And then just this, you know, very much in the spirit of the film, just um, scene after scene of a lost Sean Connery trying to make his way back to, um, trying to make his way back to the story, essentially. What's the best way to take a bridge? Both ends at once. Uh, I mean, I, I love Redford in this. It would be it would be an interesting to see the Steve McQueen version of this, but Redford, because it's not just the crossing, it's it's the keep going back to him, and he has to keep going yeah. back and telling his men, we're right, you know, 
we're doing this well the boats but you know we, we don't know if we have boats we don't know what they're like we do know that the the river is wide and the current is strong and actually i think that one of the things shortly after i watched this i was in liverpool for labor conference and i was looking at the the mersey and you're suddenly thinking right this is because we're not talking about crossing small rivers yeah and it's we are talking about crossing the kind of rivers that yeah people drown that, that need a big bridge over that's yeah, worth capturing yeah, <laughs> yeah you know and and the, the, you can't yeah. you just, oh well we'll row across it it's, it's not straightforward and redford does an incredible job with the pain the the moment where where essentially he's being told you're probably going to die you know you're going by day better by day you know <laughs> every now and then at moments yeah. of real crisis yeah. in work i would think to myself better by day (laughs) (laughs) it's around this point in the film by the way that my my 13 year old finally sort of perked up pointed at michael Caine and said oh he's from batman (laughs) which is a sort of (laughs) and then i think the final one the the final sort of scene you don't want to miss is the church tower yeah where they're discussing it you know it was it was the bridge it was the road I think that's one of the other reasons why I love this film is because you have these scenes where you've got these terrific actors with terrific scripts just going just going up against each other. So you've got, you know, you've got Gene Hackman versus Dirk Bogart versus Michael Caine and they're all having a go. Yeah. Yeah, most films you might have two of those guys. Well, it's, it, it is an unbelievable cast. You, you see it on the poster when they, you know, they had to list them in alphabetical order. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can't rank these people against each other. Next category, she's not so dumb. Are there any women in this film at all? Well, <laughs> there was a handful of sp- six, I mean, six. I can tell you. I, I, actually, I actually counted. <laughs> there are six women, one of whom is the waitress at the start who gets a credit, but I'm not sure she actually has a spoken line. <laughs> one, several of them are, are just sort of credited as resistance wife. Yeah. Uh, it's quite a male film. Oh, yeah, yeah but, but, but it's, it's just the nature of what happens if you make a film which is telling the story of the operation mm. rather than the story of the people in the operation. So, you don't, you know, again, like you were saying, you don't even get to find out if, you know, characters have a wife at home or children. We, we just don't see any of that. So there are very, very few female roles. It was very narrowly, though, the Hepburn. Um, right. So, yeah, yeah so, so it, the, one, the one female role that there is... Is Liv yeah. Ullman, but tell us. Yes, and they originally wanted to cast Audrey Hepburn. The interesting about Audrey Hepburn is, you know, she was in Arnhem at the time as sort of a teenage girl, apparently working as a runner for the resistance, or certainly that was the later claim. So apparently one of the female teenage resistance characters we see could well be the actual real-life Audrey Hepburn. And there was this desire to cast. So you'd have, you know, Audrey Hepburn playing someone who meets a young Audrey Hepburn, but sadly it didn't come off. Would it have been an excellent point for this It would have been an excellent point. Liv Liv Ullman is fine. I think we we give it to Liv Ullman. She's the best and only woman, really, in the film. (laughs) Uh, The casualty list. The the movie body count, I didn't do this, but according to the internet, it's 243 people are killed in this. Film's about 180 minutes, yeah. Yeah. About, about yeah, yeah, 1.3 1. a minute. A bit, a bit more than yeah, one yeah, a minute. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I think Operation yeah. Market Garden was pretty much yeah, more yeah, than one yeah, a minute. Yeah, In fair, fact, fair. The, what's the actual body count for the operation? Okay, it looks like the actual casualties were something in the region of 4,000 dead, wounded or missing Americans, about eleven to 13,000 dead or wounded Brits and Poles, 6,500 captured, and between seven and a half and 10,000 German casualties. So, yeah, more than one a minute. <laughs> The Cooler King Award for the most gratuitous American character. There were there were Americans in Market Garden, which makes it easier. 
But why is Elliot Gould in charge of building this bridge? Yeah, very, very fair question. Very fair question. <laughs> um, but, but this is the thing is, you know, this was an Anglo-American operation. You know, of, uh, two British airborne divisions, two American airborne divisions, independent Polish brigade, airborne brigade. Yes, it's a British ground force, but you're not short of actual American characters. You don't need to um, to insert them quite no. so gratuitously. James Kahn. So the interesting thing about the, the James Kahn incident, which is the moment where he holds a gun to a surgeon's head yeah. and asks him to, to treat his officer who is presumed dead. The problem this film had when it was released in America was the critics just assumed it had been made up. Market Garden does not really sort of feature in the American mental map of the war they sort yeah. of go from d-day to the battle of the bulge and they, they just they just thought oh well this is this is just the kind of thing that people make up to make it good that story is basically all true that story is true the officer lived lost his sight but lived for decades after yeah. that unbelievably true the, the 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 thing about being put under arrest for so so the mp could count to yeah. to 10 real fast that's true more or less it's one of these ones where I, I keep checking yeah. that it's true yeah. because I find it so hard to believe. And you can see why you can see yeah, why, why Goldie coming across it. <laughs> <laughs> and my final my final nominee for the Cooler King is Robert Redford shouting tea. Uh, uh, <laughs> you're stopping for tea uh, at 30 core. It is a true fact, though, that British tanks in the Second World War and indeed today have the ability to make instant hot water for making tea. Well, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> American, American tanks don't have that. Might, might have other things British tanks can't make American, a cup of tea American submarines, though, could make Coca-Cola. Really? All through, well, that, that was one of the things that the Gato-class American submarine had to be, <laughs> had to, you're, going, you're going on a three-month patrol, got to be able to make Coca-Cola. <laughs> right, and the final category is, and introducing, who's in this, in a tiny part, who went on to be a legend? And the problem is actually that, that they're basically all legends. Yes, already. At this point. <laughs> Although arguably Sean Connery is in a bit of a dry spell at the point he's sort of come off Bond. Yeah. And I think it's around this point that he's prancing around in tiny, tiny speedos for Zardoz or whatever it's called, <laughs> if you've ever seen that one. But there is... I uh, haven't, and I'm not going to Google it. No, don't, don't, <laughs> don't, don't. Um, do you remember the Adrian Mull TV series? I do, I Adrian do, Mull, I do. Adrian Mull's dad, Stephen Moore. Stephen Moore is the radio operator who says, I'm not going to rock the boat. Uh, oh, there we go. You know, the, the, desert, the, de- the thing about the desert, yeah. very dry. That, so that's Adrian Mills' dad, who also played Marvin in the uh, BBC adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I mean, if you're under 40 and you're listening to this, I'm, I'm sorry, I <laughs> go and listen to something else. Can, can I just absolutely clarify? You, yeah. You've asked for future stars and you've gone for Adrian Mills' dad from an early 1980s TV series and the guy that was Marvin in Hitchhiker's... They're both the same one. Yeah, yeah, but, but, yeah. But, 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 but I feel I have definition of star. No, right, okay. No, that's, <laughs> well, okay, so Anthony Hopkins, though, actually, interestingly... Definitely a star. Definitely, but not really a star at this point. No, fair, fair. So this is sort yeah. of—I mean, he's on—he's—he's—he's he's, he's on there, the yeah. fast track, yeah. which is why they give yeah. him yeah. the Colonel Frost role. Yeah, but this is yeah. kind of—I feel Hopkins would have been a better choice to go with straight away. Okay, than Adrian Molstad. <laughs> I think the thing is that at the point at which I first watched in the eighties, I was sitting there going. That's Adrian Mull's dad, who <laughs> at this point in the eighties was a sort of. <laughs> anyway, also um, Alan Armstrong. Uh, who is sort of one of these British characters you recognise is the one of the soldiers with the flamethrower, and probably, actually, uh, possibly the winner in this, Cliff from Cheers. Oh, well, there you go. There you John, go. John Ratzenberger. Mm-hmm. I don't think he has a speak, speaking role, but he is one of uh, Robert Redford's soldiers. There we go. The, the, he's bought it, Sarge, award for the best death. There is a death a minute in this quite long film. My nominees are Ginger, who 
buys it at the supply drop. As I say, that that stays in my mind. Old Dutch lady uh, who's had enough of her house being uh, being blown up and goes yeah. out to try and hail a taxi. Dutch resistance son. I think one of my children refused to watch anymore at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, it's, quite, it's quite bad at that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know why this stuff didn't bother me when I was small. I <laughs> Possibly, though, um, Major Harry Carlyle, who gets the one death monologue where Anthony Hopkins says, Harry, I... I've always wanted to ask you, but didn't because I knew so much. You knew so much, very, very much wanted me to, and I didn't want you to give you the satisfaction. But why do you always carry that umbrella? Yes, yes, yes. And I, 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 I'm with you. I think that, I think that the, the final one has to win it there. Yes. A... Never could remember the password. Knew no Jerry would carry one. Had to prove I was an Englishman. You see. <laughs> Which actually, I think you could say if you wanted, if you if you wanted a quote that sums up the film. Yes. Had to prove I was an Englishman. <laughs> Again, I mean, I, I, I know I keep going a bit, but, but it's so interesting that Market Garden is quite big in the British mental map of the war. It's actually one, one of the first war films made after the war is called Dares Be the Glory, which is about Market Garden. It's basically about the Battle for Arnhem, starring people who had fought at the Battle, Battle of yes. Arnhem, fighting, I think, possibly in the place where they had fought. And it's made... A year after the war or something. So so for British people, I think Market Garden is huge and it's a defeat. And Goldman found this sort of fascinating that the British are sort of so obsessed with But I mean also defeats. also Dunkirk, which you know also multiple Dunkirk. films on yes. it. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, in fact, well, you know, I think the British mental map of the war in the West goes something like Dunkirk, Battle of Britain, something in North Africa, D Day, Arnhem, the end. And you know, the yeah, British mental yeah, map yeah, ends in Arnhem. Fair, yeah. You know, there's actually another what, eight, nine months until the end of the war, but it sort of stops it. Yes, and, and that and, somehow becomes an American story, I think, in the popular memory. And that's just because the Yanks took over, or just because we do we like our defeats? More? I don't know. That's, I think that's something that's something point is. And your know, Market Garden is a British planned and executed operator. There's a lot of Americans there, but it's it's fundamentally a, a British plan, heavily reliant on um, British manpower. And the fact it goes wrong in, you know, quite a poignant, dramatic way with, you know, these powers cut off, having been dropped, having only expected to be there for a couple of days, having actually been fighting for days, days on end. Three days, they said. We've been yeah. Around. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there is, I, I can see the sort of the dramatic appeal of it, but yeah. Best meme. There, there is, so the one meme that has genuinely come out of... Um, bring up the Piat. Bring up the Piat. Yeah. Which, which you, although I wonder whether anyone knows what that is who isn't, People just like us, if you see what I'm saying. It's our set. The line is, the line is, when there's German armoured vehicles approaching, they shall bring up the Piat. As I'm sure all of our listeners know. All of our, if you're still listening at this point, you will know. Yeah, exactly. The Piat is the um, sort of shoulder-mounted British version of the bazooka in World War II. Personal Infantry Anti-Tank, I believe it stands for. Spigot-launched anti-tank shell, but there is a great bit of bring up the Piat. The one I would like, there's, there's a couple I would... I would, mm. I would like to have the gif of. Field Marshal Modal saying, when, when he sees the paratroopers land, he says, what, there's nothing important here. I'm important. <laughs> they must have landed here just to capture me. I mean, that, that, that's a sort of a fantastic moment of self-delusion. I would also quite like the resistance dad saying, panic. <laughs> Stiffest upper lip. Well, I've got Redford O'Neill d- discussing an I'm making bridge. Yeah, in a series yeah. of things. Hopkins being offered a surrender and Hopkins and Connery on the radio to each other. I don't know if it's a question of, of, of us coming to rescue you or you coming to rescue us. Oh. <laughs> so the Hopkins surrender thing, again, there's this great anecdote. This is Colonel Frost 
in the original script, the German crosses the bridge, says we wish to discuss terms of surrender. And the original script has Colonel Frost saying, I'm terribly sorry, we, we can't possibly take you all prisoner. Yeah. Just this fantastic, fantastic moment of, yeah. of, of stiff upper lip. Goldman is sort of on his way to shooting and is passing through London and the real Colonel Frost says, yeah. can you meet me? Uh, and he's shaking and he says, you can't make this film. This will destroy me. And Goldman can't understand. He says, I didn't say that. Someone else said that. People know, people will know yeah. that I didn't say that and they will think I am trying to steal his glory. Oh. And so they had to rewrite. So they had yeah. to give it to this, this character, Harry Carlyle. That's the moment at which Goldman sort of thinks I'm not doing any more nonfiction <laughs> because you're you're dealing with yes with, yes with real this... people of real memories and yeah yeah and and you, and you, know, you, can, you can absolutely understand if you were making this film you're cutting characters yeah, you yeah. Know, it's, it's a great line you want the line in you, yeah. you, you're not having all of the names in it and... but that's also because of when it was made isn't it you know this yeah. is a film made what 30, 35 years yeah. after after the events depicted I mean I presume nowadays. It is much easier to make those sorts of cuts for you know dramatic license for stories. Yes, well, I mean it's interesting we're, we're, as we're recording this. Rogue Heroes, the SAS series, is on TV, which contains a, a great deal of dramatic license of the sort that you <laughs> definitely would not be able to do if any of those people were still yes. alive. Nastiest Nazi. I mean, maybe Hardy Kruger. For want of a better phrase, who's, the, who's the SS man who yeah. basically can't understand why you would even be discussing terms of surrender. Yes. Why don't we yeah. just kill? We yeah. do, why don't we just kill yeah. them all? But yeah. See, my nominee for Nazi's Nazi is Monty, <laughs> who we don't see, who I think probably the first couple of times I watched this, I thought Bogard was Monty. And then I, yeah. I, I realized, and Bogard is, is Boy Browning, who was dead at this point, but his wife was still alive, Daphne du Maurier, and she was furious about this. And I think there was, there was some discussion about whether they could sue or whatever. There, there, there's lots of sort of, because he becomes a cipher for stupid British officers sending men to their deaths. Yeah. It's sort of the ghost at the feast. You know, this is an operation planned and conceived by Field Marshal Montgomery, for which he is really responsible for many of the aspects of the failure. But you're right, in the film, and I guess, you know, maybe the late 70s, it was too hard to do a film pointing out that this great British national hero had completely mucked this up. Mm. So, yeah, so Browning is sort of the substitute Monty. He was, you know, the failings are placed on his shoulders. The Dan Buster's Dog Prize for the most problematic moment I don't think there's a lot, but I'm not sure that if you were remaking this, they're not going to remake this, but if you were remaking this, <laughs> I don't think you would have the lunatic asylum scene. No, it just feels a bit I, gratuitous. And yeah, a bit, I I, I'm yeah. sure that that probably happened, yeah. and, and probably that was what Urquhart said. Yeah. It's not a bad moment in the film, but it is, it's the one moment where you thought, yeah. you know, I, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure we'd... It's a, right, the Loose Lips Award for Best Lines. Bring the boys back home. Panic. The, the fantastic moment where the Germans are getting briefed on, on, on the situation. Air power, minimal, everything minimal. It's all a question of bridges. And I think, I think probably, I'm awfully sorry, but I'm afraid we're going to have to occupy your house. There is something of a war going on. <laughs> uh, it's, but I think, it's, I think it's we can't accept your surrender. Yeah, I think you're right. We'd like to accept your surrender. We'd like to, but we can't accept your surrender. Was there anything else? Yes. yes. <laughs> sort of flatten on them. Judgment at Nuremberg. How many war crimes are committed in the course of this film? I think there's civilians are shot. Yeah. Hardy Kruger isn't terribly interested in helping in helping injured yeah. injured men get to hospital. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's yeah. it's tricky. I think he probably gets away with it. He does I think he has to go to Uruguay, but yeah. I, <laughs> 
So we've, we, we've covered a lot of the, the stuff about the making of it. There's one other interesting thing about the making of it, which the, the other Goldman anecdote is that the crossing of the river to take the bridge at Nijmegen was described by witnesses as the single bravest moment of World War II. And specifically, what was described as the single bravest moment was the second crossing. And he had to cut it because he couldn't get it into the film. Because the first crossing, go across, which is what we see, and they're more or less killed, all of them. The, and then second will have to get the, and do the, the second, same thing, the having just wave, watched. Watch this happen, yeah. and then get in boats and go. Yeah. And he, he said he, he spent ages trying to work out if there was a way that he could do this yeah. before realising that he just couldn't. Is this the operation that changed the course of World War Two? No. <laughs> had it worked had it worked had it worked it would have almost certainly sh- shortened the war by by months you know had they managed to get across the Rhine at that point then the war would have been a lot shorter and you know maybe the boundaries of east and west Germany yes right so the allies yeah. the ally, the, the, as it were the, the goody allies get to Berlin yes. yeah quicker yeah quicker. but sadly not worth dying for how does this film stand up on repeated viewing well as someone that's watched it many times I have this strange relationship with it. I will watch it again next year because, you know, that's just, that's just what I do. Going to Newcastle. Yeah, yeah exactly. Going to Newcastle. I'll, be, I'll be watching it. But look, it does, it does stand up to repeated viewing, but I'm still not sure it's a good film. I, we, we won't be quoting Conservative Prime Ministers a lot during this podcast, but there is an absolutely fantastic quote from David Cameron about this film, which is that he watches it about once a year, like you. I don't know if he's going to Newcastle as well. Probably not. <laughs> he says, I watch a bridge too far, still hoping that if I watch it again, they'll take Arnhem. <laughs> and that is that is exactly how I feel about it. I, I Every time I watch it, you're just yeah. thinking, oh, maybe... <laughs> maybe this time's going so well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they built the Bailey Bridge, they've got over nine minutes, it hasn't built up. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was A Pod Too Far with me, Robert Hutton, and Duncan Weldon. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, and if you liked it, rate and review us. You can drop us a line at podtoofar at gmail.com or on Twitter at podtoofar. Next time, we're doing the greatest film about football ever made, Escape to Victory. <laughs> <laughs>